thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through His Word. Well, last week we finished the book of Acts and we noted that it left us on a cliffhanger with the life of Paul. It leaves us waiting there. Paul's waiting to stand trial before Caesar Nero. And it's kind of like we come to this final chapter in the book of Paul's life and that final chapter is empty. And we're left asking the question, well, what happens next? You know, what, what goes on? Does he you know, get convicted and killed by Caesar Nero? Is he uh, released? And if he is released, you know, what does he do? Where does he go? What takes place? You know, there's these questions that come ultimately of what happens next in the life of Paul. You see, Luke has spent 20 uh, chapters out of 28 chapters of Acts focusing on the life of Paul. You know, we started with his, you know, amazing, horrible uh, persecution of, you know, Christianity to his uh, great uh, conversion on the road to Damascus, his three missionary journeys, this final journey to Rome in order to uh, stand trial before Caesar. And so we've been getting, you know, all this information about Paul getting closer and closer, you know, to just loving him and his life and his heart for God. And, and now we're left with like, okay, after all of this, 20 chapters, we don't know how it ends. We don't know how his life ends. We don't know, you know what the final chapter is. And so since Acts doesn't deal with that, what I wanted to do this morning is to share with you the answers to those questions. How does Paul's life end? Is there any more ministry that he does? Are there any more places that he travels. Uh, So there's going to be two main things that we're going to look at this morning. First, we're going to look at what the Bible and other historical sources have to say about how Paul's life ended. We're going to start with uh, chapter 28 of Acts, those two years that he's in prison there in Rome, all the way to his death. And the second thing we're going to look at are the last recorded words that we have of Paul in 2 Timothy. And the specific thing we're going to look at in 2 Timothy is Paul's going to share three things about the way in which he lived his life. As he looks back on his life, knowing he's going to die, looking back on his life, he shares some very powerful things that reflects upon the legacy that he's leaving behind. And as we look at Paul's life and how he lived and the legacy he leaves behind, I want us to really ponder something that I think is important for all of us to think about this morning. What kind of legacy are you leaving? If you were to die today, what kind of legacy would you leave behind? What would people say about the life in which you lived? So this morning we're going to start with focusing on how did Paul's life conclude? What transpired from Acts 28 to his death? And then we're also going to look at these final things that he says as a challenge to the legacy that he left and also the one that we are leaving. So Paul... We leave him there in Rome, and he is 
under house arrest in prison there in Rome. And during this time, you know, he didn't waste it. He actually wrote four books of the Bible. They're known as the prison epistles. And we're given the name prison epistles because he's in prison while he writes these. Uh, and it's Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon. You know, these are some of the greatest books uh, that Paul had written. They're so deep. Uh, They're full of wonderful insights and truths. And so during these two years, this is some of what Paul did with his time. And so, you know, through these books, we see some things that we're going to learn about what Paul did uh, after um, this transpires. But we're also told from Eusebius, a Greek historian, after defending himself before Caesar, the Apostle Paul was again set on his ministry of preaching. Now, the Bible and other historical documents, they don't tell us, you know, the the exact details of the trial there before Caesar. But we do know, uh, Eusebius tells us, we also look at Scripture and we realize as we see uh, the epistles that Paul wrote, that obviously he was released uh, from prison uh, and he had more ministry that God had for him to do. And Eusebius here shares this reality that he did stand before Caesar and ultimately was released to go on and do more ministry. Now, the four books that Paul wrote during these uh, times that he is in prison give us a clue to what happens next. But there's actually more books that he wrote that gives us even more specific details. And those are the books that he wrote after this time. So after he's released from prison, uh, he writes actually three more books of the Bible. And they're known as the pastoral books. Epistles. We call them pastoral epistles because they were written to pastors. They give us the qualification for pastors. They tell us how pastors should live their lives. Uh, they're great books. The books are Titus and First and Second Timothy. Now, 2 Timothy is the last book that Paul writes. It's the last uh, recorded words that we have from him. Uh, and so, you know, these books share with us some uh, places that Paul traveled after he was released. Uh, from that trial there in front of Caesar. Now, we don't have the exact dates or the exact order that Paul traveled uh, to these places, but I put together a map uh, that I think gives a likely journey that Paul would have taken after he left Rome. And I'm basing this on when he wrote these different letters and the proximity of the places that uh, we're told that he goes to to give us a, a likely route and ultimately another journey that Paul takes after being released from Rome. Now, the starting point of this journey is Rome because that's where he stood trial and that's where he's going to leave. And it's also the concluding point. Now, I'll give you the ending. Paul dies uh, and he dies in Rome. And so Rome is the place where this starts and Rome is the place where this is also going to end. So Paul, he leaves Rome and the most likely first place that he traveled to was Crete. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete. Now this verse clearly reveals to us that Paul was in Crete because you can't leave someone in Crete unless you were in Crete. And so he's there in Crete. uh, And because of when Titus was left there in 63 AD, it's very likely that this is the first place that Paul traveled after he left Rome coming to Crete, which is why I put it on the map as the first destination uh, from Rome. 2 Timothy 4.20, it tells us, Trophimus I left in Miletus sick. Once again, 
We know that Paul was in Miletus because he can't leave someone there sick unless he was there himself. And so he was also clearly in Miletus. Now, we know for sure that he's there. And because of the proximity to Crete, as you can see on the map, it seems like a likely place that Paul would have gone from Crete then to Miletus. Philemon 22, we're told, but meanwhile... Also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Now, I don't know if you know who studied through the book of Philemon. Philemon was the church leader uh, in Philippi. And so Paul is writing to him. Now, remember, Paul also wrote the prison epistles, and one of the prison epistles was the book to the Philippians. And so he wrote to the Philippians, and now he's writing to the leader of the church there in Philippi, uh, and he tells them that he wants to come and visit him. Now, we don't know for sure if Paul was able to make it to Colossae, but because of the proximity that we have to Miletus, we know that he wanted to go there, and so it seems like it's a likely place that he went to on this journey, and that's why I added it. We're not for sure uh, that he actually went there, but we do know he desired it, and we do know that it's close. 2 Timothy 4.13 says, Bring a cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, in the books, especially the parchments. Once again, Paul reveals that he was in Troas. You can't leave your cloak somewhere unless you were there. So he was there in Troas. He left his cloak in Troas. We know for sure that's a place that he went. And because of its proximity uh, to Colossae, it seems like this would have been the next logical place that Paul would have visited. Philippians chapter 1, verses 24 through 26 says, Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you, and being confident of this, I know I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So here is Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, uh, which is another one of the prison epistles. And, you know, Paul says, you know, I have a plan to come to you guys. I want to visit you guys. And uh, we're not sure if he made it there, but he desired to go there. And because of its proximity to Troas, it's very likely that Paul made this journey. And we're actually told something else that makes me pretty confident that he did stop in Philippi, because in 1 Timothy 1.3, we're told, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia. So Paul clearly reveals to us that he was in Macedonia, and as you can see from the map, Philippi is in Macedonia. Macedonia is not a city, it's a region. Uh, and this region has lots of cities. Philippi is one of the main cities there. And so Paul was already in Macedonia, and it seems like if he really wanted to go to Philippi, like he said, it'd be kind of odd that he'd be right next to it and skip it. So I think he was very likely uh, in Philippi as he was in uh, Macedonia. 2 Timothy 4.20 says, Erastus stayed in Corinth. Erastus and Paul, they, they travel together and they go to Corinth. Erastus stays there. Paul continues on and he leaves Corinth to go uh, and do more ministry. But once again, we recognize that Paul was also in Corinth. And because of its proximity to Macedonia, Corinth was most likely the next place that Paul visited. In Titus chapter 3, verse 12, we're told, Be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Paul very clearly says, I'm, I'm going to spend the winter in this place, Nicopolis, so we know that he was there, uh, and the proximity to Corinth makes it seem like this would be the next likely place that Paul visited. 
So I just want you to note here, we know for sure all the places that are circled in red are places that the Bible clearly tells us that Paul visited after he was released uh, from that trial before Caesar. We know that he went to Rome, Crete, Miletus, Troas, Macedonia, Corinth, and Nicopolis. We also know that he said he had a desire to go to Colossae and Philippi. That's why they're in blue. We don't know for sure that he went there. They're on the route. Uh, It seems very likely that this would be a place that he would go to. Uh, And so here we see that, you know, we have a whole other missionary journey. We got three in the book of Acts, and oftentimes people just think, well, Paul took three missionary journeys, and he went to Rome, and he died. Well, actually, he went to Rome, had a trial, was released, and he takes a whole other missionary journey. And this is just what we know from you know, different epistles. He could have gone to more cities uh, you know, and done more ministry, but we know for sure that he went to these cities in red, most likely went to these cities in blue as well. And so that's the main thing I want you to realize is Paul's missionary journeys didn't end. We know that you know, Jesus told him, you're going to be a witness to me in Rome. And maybe Paul thought, that was it. I'm finally going to be a witness in Rome, and then I'm going to be executed. Well, he will be executed in Rome, but not that time. He stands before Caesar, and he's released because God had more ministry for Paul to do. And he goes and takes this whole new missionary journey uh, and gets to impact many more lives. Now, there are a couple of historical sources that share some things about the end of Paul's life that I want us to note. Uh, The first historical source is Clement of Rome, and he says this about Paul. After preaching both in the East and West, Paul gained the illustrious reputation due to his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and come to the extreme limit of the West and suffered martyrdom under the prefix. Clement of Rome tells us two significant things about the end of Paul's life, about things that uh, transpired in his life. Notice the first was he mentioned that Paul ministered to the extreme limit of the West. Now, we're not told how far west Paul made it, because he just says the extreme limit, but this has brought many commentators to believe that Paul went farther west than Rome. Uh, Most believe that he actually made it as far west as Spain, and the reason that that comes to mind is because we know that that was part of Paul's heart. In the book of Romans, chapter 15, verse 24, Paul says, Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. See, Paul had a desire to go to Rome. He didn't think he was going to go the way he went, where he was going, you know, kind of to see Caesar. He was hoping he would just make a journey there like he did in any other city. But he said, you know what? I'm going to first go to Spain, and when I go to Spain, then I'm going to go to Rome. And so we know that Paul wanted to go to Spain, but we're not sure if he ever made it there. But because of what, you know, we're told here that he went this extreme far west, it's likely that this actually might be the map that we see Paul go from Rome to Spain and then down to Crete and continue on through these different places. And so, like I said, this, isn't, this is just a, a likely journey. Uh, the big point is I want you to recognize Paul definitely did uh, much more ministry ministry after he was released uh, and you know he goes to these different places now it'd be great if we had you know acts 29 uh, in the sense of getting all the details of when he went there and what God did and like we did with the other missionary journeys but uh, we can trust that the Lord uh, moved in power like he did in the other places now the second significant thing that Clement of Rome tells us is that Paul suffered martyrdom as in being killed for his faith under the prefix. Now, the prefix were the Roman rulers. So he's saying that Paul ultimately was killed for his faith under those in Rome. So after Paul is released from prison in Rome, 
he travels to places for about two years. He does a whole other missionary journey for about two years. And then he's arrested again, and he's brought back to Rome. And this time, the, the situation is very different. Because you remember before, there was no real... Uh, he wasn't guilty of anything. It was the Jews who accused him. The Romans realized that he wasn't guilty of anything, but he appeals to Caesar because the, the Jews want to kill him. This is a, a very different circumstance and situation because now the Romans are the ones that want Paul dead. And the accusation, we're not given the details of it, but we are told the severity of it because Paul reveals that in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says this, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. So Paul isn't going presumed innocent uh, until proven guilty like his last trial. He's going now as an evildoer. And, and the only way that the Romans would really see that is they probably had something where was said about Paul, just like you know the Jews try to accuse him of insurrection or bringing things against the Rome. You know, there was probably some kind of accusation where you know, Caesar Nero took that very, very seriously. Uh, and so Paul is now brought back to Rome and he is imprisoned there. Now, I have been to Rome three times uh, when I did my internship at Calvary Chapel's Bible College in Austria. Every other semester, uh, we took students to Rome. And one of my favorite places to go was the prison where Paul writes 2 Timothy. It's the prison that he's in right before he is executed. Uh, and when you go there, you know, we kind of think of a prison. We think of you know, bars and you know, something to keep you in. But really, the prison there is much more like a dungeon. Here is a picture of the prison cell that Paul spent the last days of his life in. Now, the floors have been redone. There wasn't a shrine to Paul when he was in there, so that wouldn't have been there either. But as you can see, it's just kind of a dungeon. It's only probably about five foot ten. I couldn't stand up uh, in this place. I had to, you know, be hunched over in there. And you can see here the arrow is pointing to a hole. Uh, now they built a stairway so that tourists can come down. But back in the day of Paul, they just drop you in the hole. That was the only way in or out. Uh, and then you're just you're in there. That's you're in the dungeon. Uh, and so you know they had to pull you back up when they want to kill you. But uh, so this is where he spent. The last bit of his life, this is where he wrote 2 Timothy. And the reason I really love you know, this place, when I went to Rome, you think, well, that's kind of a dark and dreary kind of site. I mean, surely the Colosseum or something else would be better. Well, the reason I love this is because we would go in and it would fill up with all these tourists and we would tell the tourists, you know what, Paul, in this cell, wrote a book of the Bible and we're going to read it aloud if you'd like to listen. And so the tourists would come and we would read 2 Timothy aloud to them and it's a powerful book. You know, one day we'll go through it. But what I do want us to note is at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul says some things about his life, about as he's reflecting on it. He's writing with a recognition, I know I'm going to die. I know death is coming and I'm reflecting on my life. I'm reflecting on the legacy I'm leaving behind. And he shares three very significant and important things. And I want us to focus on those things. Uh, You know, I'm sure that most of us here have been to a funeral. And usually during a funeral service, you take time to remember the life of the person who just died, whether the pastor or family or friends. You know, they come up and they start speaking about the person and they share about bits of their life. And usually they share, you know, most of the positive things, but they want to talk about how this person 
lived. And you know, when I go to funerals or I actually preside over funerals and I listen to this being shared, I'm always thinking, you know, what is it that I am going to be remembered for? You know, when I'm dead and people are standing up speaking about me, what is it that they're going to say? What is it that I am going to be remembered for? What is my legacy going to be? You know, I want you to think about that for yourself. When you're dead, how do you want to be remembered? When you die and you have your funeral service and people are coming up and sharing about you, how do you want to be remembered? What do you want your life to have been about? What are they going to say about you? Now, some of you may have experienced people who, you know, they've been told that they're going to die soon. You know, you have terminal you know, cancer, or you have something that, you know, is going to kill you, you've got a month to live, or you have weeks to live. And when someone gets that news, they get to this place where now they start to reflect on their life. They look back, and they start thinking, you know, my life's coming to an end, I know it. Now, it doesn't even mean terminal cancer. Some people just get older, and they get to a point where they think, man, I know that I've lived longer than I'm going to, uh, in the sense of I'm at the end, and now I start looking back to my life. And when you get to that place you notice that people start to really think about what was really important to them. Usually, they come to realize they lived a lot of their lives for things that weren't that important. And they neglected people and things that were important. You know, I've sat down with people on their deathbed and listened to them share, and they often are full of regret of, you know, I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I wish I would have spent more time serving God. I wish I would have spent more time giving to people instead of hoarding everything for myself. I wish I would have spent more time demonstrating love to this person or or not wasting so much time doing this or that. Because you get to the end of your life and you start to reevaluate and reprioritize and think through what is really important. And when you're about to die, oftentimes you actually come to a much better priority scale because usually family and God and other things start to come to the top of your priority system when you think everything's good and you're going to live for a long time. Oftentimes you're willing to just push that off. Oh, I got time to do that. I can get right with God later. I can live for God later. I can spend more time with my family later. But when it's all said and done and you know you only got days to live, you usually look back and for many people it's a time of regret. Basically saying, you know what, I wish I would have done things differently. You know, some people are fortunate enough to come to that place, to be told they have a terminal disease, to be told that they're going to die, and whether it's, you know, a miracle of God or a misdiagnosis from the doctor or whatever, they get a second chance at life. They don't die, and they have many more years to live. And many people who have been in that place, you see a drastic difference in the way in which they live their life because they came to that point where they recognized, I wish I would have been living differently, and now I have the opportunity to actually live differently and leave a different legacy than I would have if I would have died when I was told I was going to. You know, people don't want to come to the end of their life with regrets. They want to come to the end of their life knowing they lived for the right things, knowing they spent time with the right people, served and did the things for the Lord. The reason I bring this up is because we're going to see Paul's final recorded words. And as he reflects back on his life, and he shares his legacy, he shares how he lived, he shared you know, what he's passing on, 
he wasn't a man full of regrets. He was a man who recognized something that I hope all of us, when we die, can say these words that he does. Let's see what he has to say. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8 says this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Notice what Paul starts off with saying. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. Paul realized, I am going to die very soon. The time of my departure, speaking of my death, is at hand. He recognized that. And in light of that, he says three things about how he lived. I know I'm about to die, and this is the way in which I've lived my life. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. You know, these three statements remind us of something that Paul says earlier on in his life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24-27, through 27, Paul says this, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul here gives us an analogy of a race. Now I'm sure many of you who have been in a race, maybe younger years, or maybe even as you're older, you ran in a marathon or some kind of race. You come to a marathon and you find that a lot of people are in that race for different reasons. Some people are just in the race to get the shirt. You know, they want the t-shirt that says, I ran in the marathon. They have no plan on running, but they want everyone to think they did. Then you have people who run for some kind of charity, you know, and they torture themselves in order to give money you know, to breast cancer or to some other thing, and it's a worthy cause, and so they do it. And, and then there's people who, who run ultimately just to see if they can finish. You know, can I make it this many miles? I want to prove to myself that I'm capable of this. Uh, and then there are those who run in order to win. They're the serious runners. They're out there competing for victory. And Paul says, you know what? There are a lot of runners in the race, but there's only going to be one who receives the prize. There's only going to be one who actually wins, and you need to run like that. Run to win. Run with that as your goal. Paul says everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now, the Greek word translated temperate is a word used specifically for the athletic games that Paul is referring to here. It means to be self-controlled and to abstain from things that would hinder the pursuit of the goal. So Paul's saying, as these people who are very serious athletes who are competing in the Olympic Games, they will sustain, they will abstain from things that would hinder them. They'll eat things that are healthy. They'll abstain from things that are unhealthy. They'll do things that torture their body to make them faster. They do this stuff, why? So they can get this perishable crown. And that's what it was, a wreath. 
a perishable reed. There wasn't like gold or silver. It was just, you know, it's going to wither and die. They go through all of this so they can stand up for this perishable crown. And his whole point in all of this is if they're willing to abstain from this and they're willing to do this in order to win this race for a perishable crown, how much more should we as Christians live for God in this life because we're not getting a perishable crown, we're getting an imperishable crown. And Paul's mindset is we should be those who abstain from things that would hinder us in the life that we live for God. We should be taking it seriously. We should be saying, I'm going to rid myself of this and that in order to be able to live for God the way that He's called me to because I'm not just going to get some perishable wreath. I'm going to get the crown of righteousness. You know, Paul says, this is what I do with my own life. I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Basically, I don't allow my fleshly desires to control me. I control them. If they get in the way of my goal of living for Christ, I abstain from them because I'm running to win and anything that's in the way of me winning, I'm going to get rid of. And that's the way that all of us should run the race that God has given us, being willing to abstain from anything that would get into the, in the way of the ultimate goal of living for God. So the challenge that Paul is giving us is that we should run the race that God has placed before us in order to win. Don't just run hard at the beginning and walk the rest of the way. Don't sit back and do nothing until the final lap and then give it your all. Every day, we should run to live for the Lord. You know, one of the big things I love about Paul, he says some pretty difficult things, some pretty challenging things, but here's a man who practiced what he preached. You know, a lot of what he said, I think, would probably have fell on deaf ears to the people he was writing to if he didn't practice what he preached, because he does say some pretty bold things. He does say some pretty challenging things, but yet here is a man who throws this challenge out to his readers, us being one of them, but here's a guy who did it. Here's a guy who says, I'm not just challenging you, I'm challenging myself. I'm not just telling you to do it, I am seeking to do it as well. That's why at the end of his life he was able to say, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. You know, Jesus spoke about what we should live for in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. He says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice Jesus' challenge here. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not here on earth. And one of the practical ways we do that is by living for God here in this life ultimately stores up treasures in heaven. When we live for the things of this life, we're just storing up treasures here on this earth. And so we have a choice to make. You know, what am I ultimately going to live for? If I live for God, that's heavenly treasures. If I live for the things of this world, that's earthly treasures. And Jesus gives us this reality of earthly treasures, they're temporal. Moss eat them. Rust destroys them. Thieves break in and take them. They're temporal, but heavenly treasures are eternal. And when you weigh them out, you realize one, the heavenly, is far superior to the other, the earthly treasures. If you were told today that you had one week left to live, and you look back and you start examining the way in which you've been living your life, would you say that you've been laying up treasures in heaven? 
Or would you be saying that you've been laying up treasures here on this earth? Would you be able to say as Paul did, I fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith? I think something important for us to note is what we'll be able to say about our life right before we die will be determined by how we live now. You know, I know a lot of Christians, they want at the end of their life to be able to say, oh, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I kept the faith, I lived for God. But the reality is, the only way you can say that is by how you're living now. How you live now is going to determine your legacy. It's going to determine what you're going to be saying at the end of your life and what people are going to be saying about you once you die. The choices you make now, the direction you go now, is going to impact that legacy. Now, I hope all of us as believers, we want at the end of our lives to be able to say, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. But in order to be able to say that at the end of our life, we need to be living that way now. I want to challenge you this morning to really examine your life. And I want you to start the day you accepted Christ. You know what? Everything that you did before that, yeah, we're all stupid sinners and we did very foolish things. But the day you accepted Christ to now, I want you to really examine your life. Examine the way in which you have been living. And as you look at your life, does it bring regret? Or does it bring rejoicing? Does it bring sadness? Or does it bring celebration? You know, if you haven't been doing very well in the race that God has given you, if you haven't been living your life for God, don't wait for some near-death experience. Don't wait for a doctor to say, hey, you have a terminal disease, and then find out that you've been healed or you don't, and and then, wow, now I'm going to turn my life around. If you haven't been living for the Lord, let today and this message be the warning for you. Today. Get right with God. Today, turn around the way in which you live. Today, change your priorities. Today, ask God to help you to live for what really matters in this life. So when you're on your deathbed, hopefully you will be able to say, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. When you stand before Jesus, you'll hear the wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. The Greek historian Eusebius tells us how Paul and Peter, our other main character in the book of Acts, died. Coming a second time to Rome, Paul suffered martyrdom under Nero, who had Paul beheaded in Rome, and Peter crucified. So the two main characters in the book of Acts are both killed under Caesar Nero. Paul was beheaded, and he mainly was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen, and Roman citizens weren't subject to crucifixion. Crucifixion was so horrible that they said, no, this is for anyone but Roman citizens. So the normal death for a Roman citizen was beheadment. Uh, And so that's what happened to Paul. He was beheaded, uh, but Peter, he wasn't a Roman citizen. Uh, And so he was crucified, and uh, church history tells us that uh, as he came to be crucified, he said, you know what, I am not worthy to die in the same way as my Lord Jesus Christ, and so I want to be crucified upside down. Uh, And so the Romans, uh, according to church history, obliged him so that uh, it would be different. But the reality is all of us are going to die unless the Lord comes and raptures us. And we get to the end of our life, the important question that we're going to ask is, how did we live? Did we live for God or did we live for ourselves? Did we finish the race God had given us? Did we keep the faith? What kind of legacy are we going to leave 
behind. The legacy that we leave will be based on the way in which we lived our life. Because you can't leave a godly legacy without godly living. We need to recognize that reality. I'm sure we want a godly legacy, but it only comes through godly living. And if you haven't been leaving a godly legacy, you know what the great news is? You can change your legacy. Right now you can make a choice to come to the Lord and repent of the way in which you've been living, of your priorities, of the direction of your life, and ask Him to change you. And from now to the end of your life, start making a legacy that truly matters, one that is godly. Can I have the worship team come on up, please? Charles Thomas Studd. He was a man that truly was a stud. He was a British missionary. He went to China. He went to India. He went to Africa. He actually dies in Africa doing ministry to those in Africa. He wrote a poem titled, Only One Life Twill Soon Be Passed. Only What's Done for Christ Will Last. And I'm going to finish by reading this poem to you. And I hope the words of this poem are a real challenge for you to put into practice what we've been looking at this morning of the legacy that we live and what truly matters in life. And as I finish, the worship team's going to lead us in worship, and myself and Jenny and Lee and Lupe, we're going to just be at the back. Uh, And if anyone wants prayer, perhaps you need prayer because you realize, I haven't been living for the Lord. I haven't been setting the legacy that I should, and I want prayer for that, or you're sick, or you have any type of need, uh, we just are going to be available as the worship team leads in worship uh, just to pray for you. And so we encourage you to take advantage of that if you desire to. But here is the poem. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord will meet and stand before His judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, that still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to lead and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. With each its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in His will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow Thy Word to keep. Faithful and true what er the strife, pleasing Thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only let my love with fervor burn, and from the world let me turn, living for Thee and Thee alone, bringing Thee pleasure on Thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, Thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, "Twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done 
for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for Thee. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last.